Hello and welcome to The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. My name is Max Haven and I am Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University. And hello from me, my name is Aris Komporoso-Satanasiu and I'm a lecturer in sociology at University College London. On this show we speak to people whose research or writing has inspired us to think differently about capitalism and society. We seek to go beyond medical approaches to mental, to mental health, and we explore the way an economic system both produces and relies on anxiety. Our podcast is produced by the Common Anxieties Research Project with the support of UCL's Institute of Advanced Studies and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. For more information, you can visit anxious.community. It's my great pleasure uh, this episode to welcome our guest, Harry Sewell. Hi, Harry. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Just so pleased to be part of this. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Harry is founder and director of HS Consultancy and is a former executive director of health and social care at the National Health Service here in the UK. He's a writer and speaker in his specialist area of social justice, equalities and ethnicity, race and culture, and mental health. Harry is Honorary Visiting Fellow at the University of Central Lancashire at, and was the co-founder of the National Social Care Strategic Network for Mental Health and was chair of that until November of 2010. Harry has various books, articles, and book chapters published with new material emerging regularly, usually every year. Harry has also worked with another local campaigner to secure services for survivors of sexual violence and currently runs a campaign, Men Supporting Women's Rights, including Men Against Rape. He is increasingly studying forms of masculinity and the possibilities in practice and employee relations to recognize the intersections between masculinity and other aspects of identity. It's, right. it's fabulous to have you with us. Great. Um, so, in this episode, we really wanted to speak with you as a community practitioner, as a, as a scholar, as a thinker about the way in which anxiety, this thing we call anxiety, this, this bundle of, um, of, of symptoms and, um, and challenges that people face that we label as anxiety, is not something that's neutral in a, in a racialized society uh, with it, that is in some ways haunted by the legacies of empire, of slavery, and of uh, what sometimes gets called racial capitalism. Um, and I, I wanted to begin that sort of line of questioning, which you've written so much about, by, by asking about the effects of this lockdown and pandemic on, on mental health, and specifically the way that that might be different for people who come from different ethnic backgrounds or different spaces of racialization in, in a society like the one we're in right now, the United Kingdom. Yeah, okay. Um, I guess one of the most striking things is that when we talk about the impact, um, often people speak from a personal position. And if you're in this sentence, if you're um, someone who's privileged enough to have, to have the technology, the kind of role um, to work from home, um, you live in a space um, which might include access to a garden, access to walks nearby, and just room in your house, your experience of the lockdown is very different to someone who might be living um, not necessarily a crowded 
home, but living in a home that doesn't afford them the luxury of a garden, um, private spaces, even to do something um, like a Zoom call or any call, or if you're living in an environment where um, you don't have, or context where you don't have the resources to go out and do a big shop regularly, um, and you have to kind of you know go and bargain, bargain hunt in the supermarket in order to kind of you know stretch your means, then the whole lockdown experience is very different. Um, so there are kind of two ways I guess I'd come at the question. One is the issue of relativity that things almost feel worse for many people when others are describing a way of being that doesn't match their own and it kind of amplifies the extent to which people feel their disadvantage. That is kind of you know bad enough to live with that disadvantage but to know that there are others who are living a completely different experience and are somehow kind of blind to years can kind of you know create the sense of division in our society and to kind of internalize the sense of isolation. And then you've got the real practical impacts based on some of the things that I've spoken about, you know, which is around, you know, not having space, not having access to, you know, fresh air and, you know, green spaces right on your doorstep, um, not having the means to afford to, you know, go and do a single big shop. Or maybe, you know, people can't afford to keep their data running on their phones, might not even have ongoing internet. So when people talk about, you know, oh well, I've been resorting to online platforms, that might be okay if you've got yeah, the means to do that. You've got enough computers and devices in the house to make that manageable. Um, and, you know, if you're not as affluent to afford those things, it can be a very different experience. So I kind of think that can be toxic too. Um, so basically the socioeconomic constraints on people. Um, and then layered on top of that from a racialized perspective is both the reality of the higher rates of critical illness and mortality for people from racialized backgrounds as a result of the coronavirus um, and COVID-19 itself, but also the nature of the debate about that. Um, so for example, on social media, um, some of us have seen the images in China where black potential customers have been shut out of fast food restaurants on the basis of their ethnicity, the basis that they're perceived as being black and therefore posing a higher risk um, of coronavirus. Um, so not only is there the increased sense of threat in a context when we look at what's going on in Minneapolis, um, this kind of increased threat in terms of just living, and then you've got that kind of raised even further by the increased likelihood of contracting coronavirus and dying from it, and then knowing that that's not being greeted with empathy, um, but rather hostility and a sense of fear. Um, without any broader understanding of how this fits in with a dominant narrative around a group of people who should be feared. Um, and that is highly toxic. And kind of one of the areas of interest I have is kind of looking at how you get these kind of multiple supposed microaggressions that in their cumulative nature become toxic um, and are really damaging in terms of, you know, people's mental health, including raised levels of anxiety. And it's such such important work, and and I wanted to to frame it before we go into that question of of toxicity, um, and what you call toxic interaction theory, which is a very useful framework by 
just asking you to, to talk us through the strange way that in this moment, but historically as well, things like elevated levels of mental ill health among racialized people, among Afro-Caribbean people in the UK particularly, gets in a mainstream discourse blamed on that population itself, as if it's some inherent quality, in a way that then totally brackets out all of the structural, systemic, institutional, interpersonal, and microaggressive contexts that would actually lead to those conditions of mental ill health to begin with. And the sort of weird way that um, it reminds me of the theory of, that um, Karen and Barbara Fields present of, of racecraft, that that attributes that are from, a, that, that emerge out of a racist society get attributed to a racialized group as if they're natural, inevitable qualities. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, a good entry point is to think about language. I'm really interested in um, discourse. I'm really interested in linguistics. Um, and the phrase that often comes up when we're talking about the poor experiences that people from racialized groups have, um, people often say, because this person's black, there's an increased likelihood that they may face police brutality, or because this person's black, it's more likely that they'll have a serious mental health um, problem and probably psychosis. Um, and just that phrase, because they're black, is where this kind of assumption, not consciously, but implicit in that, is this assumption that there's something intrinsic about that person, why they're more likely to face these negative outcomes. Um, and it's a device. I say it's a, an assumption, it's an assumption and it's a device. It's a device to avoid articulating what actually is happening. It's because, largely, because of the racism and discrimination that individuals and groups are more likely to have these adverse outcomes. But people don't really wish to enter into that kind of dialogue. Um, so to avoid, and that's why I say it's a device, to avoid having to say, because of the racism people face, by virtue of having been racialized and all the negative connotations around that, they're likely to have these adverse, adverse outcomes. We just avoid that and say, because they're black. It shortens the sentence, but it actually takes out the substance of it. And it conveniently takes out the substance of it. Yeah, uh, in our last episode, we were speaking with the critical race scholar, Alana Lenton, about, about this. And, and I wanted to ask you a question that also came up in our discussion with her, which is, what, you're, you're a, a practitioner who does a lot of public education with health practitioners um, and a lot of writing with health practitioners in mind. Why do you think it is, or what are some of the reasons why so many health practitioners want to, to, to draw on this technique or device of avoidance, to not speak about race, and not to speak about racism in society? What, what do you think leads to that? Okay. Yeah, so in health and social care, um, the, the sectors I work a lot in, um, I think largely that there is a lack of belief in the reality that racism is as pernicious as it is. That's, that's it in summary form. Um, and behind that headline of not really believing it's as bad as it is, is the, the, the way in which there's a diffuse understanding of what racism means. Um, so for many people, um, you know, racism means someone used the N word 
or someone through feces through your letterbox as an insult. Um, and you can see, you can name it and identify it, and it's interpersonal. Um, and, you know, as long as you don't do those things, um, you might have been clumsy, you might have made a mistake, but you haven't been racist. And I think the hardest thing is for people who haven't experienced the impact of racism or people who have not been able to identify racism as a causal factor, it's just hard for them to really recognize it and then to see the consequences of it. Um, so just to extend that, um, you know, I, in some ways, I, um, you know, didn't even juxtapose it, but yeah, kind of looked at the opposite of the real obvious forms of racism. And I kind of spoke about the more diffuse, the institutional forms of it. And many people haven't really found a language or a set of theoretical frameworks to enable them to critique, for example, you mentioned about racial capitalism, to critique the impact of our socioeconomic structures, both in this country and globally. Um, so an example might be the discourse that exists around migrants and how immigration is unconsciously linked to people of darker skin tone and then it's always considered through a negative prism um, and in fact there's so much evidence around the kind of positive impact of migration and you know how people contribute and even in the COVID-19 scenario kind of looking at our health service you know it's kind of patently obvious that actually we've got through this on the backs of people who might be perceived as you know migrants or descendants of migrants but the discourse the dominant discourse, not the only, but the dominant discourse is still, you know, through a very negative slant. Um, and most people don't have the ability or seem to don't have the will to critique dominant ways of viewing the world. Um, and capitalism is kind of almost at the heart of that, that our primary function is to aid productivity. Um, and, you know, once we focus in on that, then the value of human life becomes diminished when it's weighed up against the potential for increasing, you know, capital wealth of the, the, of the nation. Um, so, you know, again, that feeds into what I spoke about the negative narrative around migrants, that if all we're viewing, um, you know, managing migration as is, you know, let's let in people who can advance our wealth and to kind of you know, take out of that, the real empathy in the heart that says, well, this is a human being. Um, and maybe, um, you know, just because of the value of life, we might respect, um, their desire to move, um, then, yeah, you know, it kind of gets lost in that. It gets subsumed in this bigger dominant narrative. Makes me think, too, about the way that, you know, here in the UK, the, the Conservative government's agenda has been explicitly to create what they call a, a hostile environment to uh, migrants, um, or at least the kind of migrants that they don't, they don't prefer. And it strikes me that that also is a, is a, is a technique in many ways of weaponized anxiety. I mean, it is about creating multiple stressors in people's lives such that they, uh, they, they leave essentially, they self-deport or they, you know, um, it creates such, a, such a, a cloud and such a dangerous atmosphere that people um, are inhibited from making the kinds of movements they might need to make. In a way, that's a real good um, cipher for what happens in organizations um, when we say people are making choices to elect out of something um, with some real denial of the factors that actually are prohibitive. 
that you know whether you know it's people applying for more senior roles or whether it is people not choosing to access talking therapists because the therapists don't speak or look like them or don't use conceptual frameworks that um, you know connect with them that people elect out of things and you know, the argument would be well you know it's open and available to everyone um, and certain groups just don't afford themselves these opportunities and you know you can lead a horse to water but you can't kind of make them drink i mean these kind of really futile and pointless um you know summaries of things which are a lot deeper um are highly problematic so in kind of going back to your question about you know what happens with practitioners often they'll get to that level of thinking well there is equal opportunity but people just aren't taking up the opportunities available to them um, and they don't really kind of understand the bigger pressures that affect choice because choice isn't just um, as it presents itself. Quite, quite. Um, and I, I want to come back to this question of the practitioners in a moment um, by way of, of exploring one, one terminology that you've, you've sought to develop over the last few years to give us some language to think through the complexities of race that go beyond just the kind of explicit, um, you know, flag-waving uh, racist behavior, what, what you call toxic interaction theory, which, which you introduced in an article in Ethnicity and Inequalities in Health and Social Care, the journal in 2012. And I'm just going to read the little, the little summary of it that you provide there and then ask you to, to expand on it a little bit. Uh, and you write, prior experience of personalized racism, and you, you alert us to the fact that personalized racism could be interpersonal and it could also be institutional. Uh, so prior experiences of personalized racism and an awareness of non-personalized racism in society creates conditions in which mean, which mean that African-Caribbean people experience toxicity in their dealings with white people and white institutions, including mental health services. Um, can, you, can you kind of unpack this a little bit for us and then also explain its importance uh, for uh, mental and uh, social care practitioners as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so th there are very there there are many versions um, of uh, you know I don't know, the ways in which people look at this. Um, and you know the, the one I talk about is non-validation, <coughs> unconscious bias. And you know if I were to update my paper, I guess I'd introduce that as a central theme. And what I mean by that is um, the failure to recognise the reality of people's experience. Racialized minorities have a range of experiences that will have an impact on the way in which they relate to you. And um, in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, Ibram X. Kendi talks about you know, this idea, and it's not new, that to be non-racist isn't good enough. That by default, you enable a racist system if all you do is to not be racist, that actually, one needs to counter a dominant trend, dominant force. Um, and an example I've often used, which is kind of related um, to another form of inequality is like, you know, as someone who, as I said, go to the gym, used to go to the gym. Um, if I was in there with a group of guys who were making rape jokes, um, and I thought, oh, wow, this is really unpleasant. Let me just push my headphones in further and keep doing my bench presses. That wouldn't make me legitimately be able to say, well, <clears throat> I'm anti-rape. Um, and, you know, I'm going to stand my ground because all I did was to choose to not partake, but I didn't challenge. Um, and it's that kind of idea that to be anti-racist requires something more than being neutral in the context of a dominant force 
where inequalities um, are being played out repeatedly. So as a practitioner, if we meet an individual who we know has been racialized and as a consequence is likely to have had a whole range of either explicit personalized racist experiences or will have experienced some long shadows of inequality, which I'll define in a minute, um, on their lives, then if we meet someone who's had those experiences, either we don't think that they're that bad, so it's not worth speaking about, or we'll say, actually, my understanding of mental health is that if we've got traumatic experiences and someone's in our system, our mental health system, there's a strong likelihood that those traumatic experiences will have had an impact on why they are where they're at. And therefore, it's just a requirement in terms of good practice and professional standards to say, look, these traumatic things have probably had an impact. Let me explore them. I'm not going to assume that the individual will see it clearly. I'm not going to assume that this is the case in a definite way. But we at least would say, I understand these things have happened. Let me include it. And the failure to do that almost implies that either workers are too timid, ill-equipped to do it, or don't really believe that racism is as pernicious as it is. And when we get to that point, which is what I think the kind of greatest thing is, then it raises a real problem because we're seeing in the data this repeated pattern where if you are from a racialized background, you're more likely to have a set of negative outcomes um, in terms of your admission rates, the route into mental health services, increasingly through the criminal justice system or disproportionately through the criminal justice system, average lengths of stay, which are longer, and kind of being in the more um, interventionalist end of our system and kind of in the reverse of that, lower rates to the more therapeutic and supportive. Um, aspects of our mental health. We know that pattern has existed for years. Um, so if you look at individual practice, people might be able to justify why they've made the decisions they have made, but you look at the pattern and the data and you say something is going on. We can't, we can't deny that, but it's irrefutable to say there's something going on. And even before we begin to label what it is, we have to acknowledge that this is a problem. Um, and it, either if you kind of go for the extremes, the polarities, either it's got to be something intrinsic about this section of our population, or it's got to be something about the external world. And it might be a mixture of both, but there has to be some acknowledgement um, of the power of the external world. And it's that thing, to not acknowledge that and to include that in an understanding of why someone presents with a mental health problem is it's a huge failure in our system. Harry, I wonder if I could ask you about one specific aspect of these sort of issues that we're discussing now, which is the generational dimension. And I know that Max has talked to you a little bit about our project, which is particularly interested in student anxiety and the university as a space where younger people are experiencing this this. Uh, issue of anxiety today. So I'm wondering if you could, and from your experience as an educator as well, if you could uh, tell us a bit about what you think, um, uh, how, how you think those questions, um, the, the issues that you were describing around um, uh, the, 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 the approach to non-racism non and versus anti-racism, um, how, how do you think these 
these uh, uh, behaviors, these approaches are uh, kind of play out in university spaces. And I mean, how do you think the younger generation of students uh, and of racialized, from racialized groups are experiencing? Um, right. Yeah. Thank you. Type of anxiety. Uh, Iris, I really appreciate appreciate the question because I said I mentioned about the long shadow. I said you know I was going to talk about the immediate things, and I mentioned the long shadow. And this is specifically what I was talking about: is that there are historical events that continue to leave their shadow even after they've long gone. Um, you know, slavery might be one of those such things, um, and people kind of think, "Oh, that's so long in the past." And actually, the forms of inequality, the way in which um, people's home countries have been ravaged um, as a consequence, um, the impact on identity, the impact on the representations of um, people of color, the representations in faith of you know people like Jesus and like you know how someone who lived where he did has become blonde-haired and blue-eyed, um, which if he looked like that then would have been seen as some kind of you know freak, not. God, um, but somehow that kind of dominant way of forcing that idea through slavery and through colonism, um, colonization, sorry, um, then, you know, they're the kinds of things that still appear. And those images of Jesus are still, um, you know, seen around the world today and people still bow and worship that. And the kind of way of getting into people's psyche um, in a way that isn't so obvious to them, even when it's happening but it still has an impact. Um, and I will get, kind of get to the thing about being in education, um, but one of the things about privilege and one of the things about being racialized is when you break it down and you think about you know, classical music, you think about the art that is seen as high-end art, you think about the way to speak, um, the style of dress. I kind of go to some really hot countries and think, how have we bought into the idea that you should still wear a three-piece suit in 38 degree temperatures because you want to look formal? That these ideas about what formal and what prestigious looks like tells us that we have, as and I say we now in terms of people who have been racialized um, as black people, that we have begun to internalize the ideas of what good is, including um, you know, the way in which we eat food and, you know, some of the things that are natural and good for us will eschew and, you know, incorporate the kind of ideas of good food that are more processed and refined and um, which aren't good for us. So th th there's that kind of long history that runs through, you know, the last however many hundred years to where we are now that is having an impact. And then the difference between, and this is a big point for me, the difference between revenue, kind of income, and capital wealth, and how the capital wealth in different sections of the population are really different. So we might find that you find, uh, you know, some black people, racialized people, who have income that might match or be on a par, but the body of capital wealth, land ownership, property ownership, is very different. And what that means in terms of, you know, future generations, succinctly, let me just deal with that. You know, that ability to remortgage your house, house and release equity to either, you know, help your kids buy theirs or to do your master's um, or to get through a period of serious illness is different if what you're living in is social housing that is passed from one generation to the next. Whereas your peer might have moved up from a two bed to a three bed to a five bed over subsequent generations. So all of those things are kind of quite trying to race through 
this kind of long shadow idea that history creates disadvantages that you can lose sight of when you just say, but like, you know, both students have kind of got through the, you know, entry requirements, you're on the course, and now you're standing on an equal footing. And it may well be that, you know, someone from a racialized background may have even attained better levels in their, um, you know, grades. And you can kind of say, well, you came in with an advantage. And all of that other stuff that I've just done for the last three minutes just completely gets blotted out of the picture. So here are some of the ways in student life where it might have an impact. Firstly, just looking at faculty staff um, and not being convinced that the faculty staff look like you and therefore have a sense of your experience. And social kind of standpoint theory, um, which kind of comes from feminist literature, will kind of talk about you know, being able to see the world as someone who's experienced something. And it's not the only way to understand the world, but there is some great value in knowing that someone has seen the world through your eyes as far as possible. So there's something about that, the faculty staff. The other is the literature um, and the you know, research that is drawn upon and which is given privilege. And there is evidence that um, you know, even with um, you know, COVID-19 and coronavirus, that there have been researchers in other parts of the world who have kind of studied disease patterns um, whose material doesn't see the light of day. Um, because someone else who looked different um, managed to publish something similar and that was kind of given privilege. So there's that. So the faculty staff, something about, you know, whose materials being drawn upon and seen as authoritative. Um, and then there is a thing about the prior experiences. Um, if you're a student of colour um, and your experience in education or your interactions with the police or your interactions with um, security staff, in department stores has been that you're always been treated with suspicion and that your perspectives are often not valued, then that comes with you into each encounter with faculty staff. And one of the big problems and toxic interaction theory kind of talks to this is that if we just assume that as long as I'm not doing anything bad, that is okay, then we miss the point because it assumes that everyone's standing on the same level playing field. What we need to be able to do is to nuance our response, to acknowledge that actually, I know that your history, you know, may well have been that you've worked with people who have been disrespectful, who have not really taken seriously your concerns. And I want you to know that in this context, I'm very mindful of that. So when I say I have an open door policy, I actually do mean I have an open door policy. Or to say, look, I know from the research, that you know, people who have been racialized have really different experiences of um, further education and higher education. I just kind of want to check in with you whether or not there's kind of anything we can be doing better. That's a signifier. That's a form of communication that says, I understand that there's something unique about your experience that I need to tune into. The absence of that is a failure of the system. Now, when I raise this, I often can see people looking quizzically, thinking, you know, am I supposed to second guess? people's concerns, am I supposed to be walking on eggshells? And that isn't the challenge. The challenge is just to acknowledge that we're not standing on neutral territory. And that's the hardest thing, I think, for many in many sectors and including in our educational institutions.
Thanks so much for that. It's it, you, you break it down so clearly, um, which is, is so valuable, I think, uh, especially around this topic that, as we've already mentioned, gives so many people such incredible anxiety. I want to speak about a, another kind of technique of, of avoidance and, and uh, around talking about these realities, which is the idea that, that mental ill health, especially as it presents among students and especially among um, racialized students, is simply a kind of like personalized biomedical problem of a kind of like uh, of, of, of economic functioning. That, that the problem is simply that people are not able to function as they ought to function. And I think one of the things that, it, that becomes clear in your work and, and uh, as both a writer and as a practitioner is, is a much broader understanding of what, it, of what health essentially means, both social and mental health, and that uh, our, our forms of treatment and forms of care can't simply be limited to the quite narrow definition of what health looks like from the biomedical model. And I, want, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, and especially its importance when thinking through the forms of care that people are in need of as a result of surviving a racist society. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'd start by saying people see different things when they see a presentation of distress, of strong emotion, or something that people might refer to as psychosis. That the dominant biomedical model would see that as evidence of an illness. Um, and behind that is the idea that there's something biological um, in that. There are alternative ways of understanding that. And it's evident that most people understand that the external world invades us, that you know, things that happen have an impact on mental health. Um, and I kind of feel I don't even need to explain that in much detail other than to say that even government ministers now and the kind of dominant discourse about the impact of coronavirus and the lockdown in particular, people are saying, well, we're seeing an increased rate of mental health problems, including psychosis, particularly amongst young men. Um, and first-time contact in the Royal College of Psychiatrists have alerted us to this because of some of the impact of lockdown. So here we have contemporary acknowledgement that what happens in your life has this real pernicious impact on your mental health. So in one breath, we can acknowledge that and then we seek solutions through a biological route. And I'm not sure how much critical thought is being given to the way in which we talk about these things. Um, it's a bit like if someone smokes 100 cigarettes a day and ends up with lung cancer, yet we might kind of say, well, yes, there was something genetically that meant that they were more likely to have ended up with lung cancer because there's someone else down the road who also smoked 100 and didn't end up with lung cancer. But our starting point isn't to say, well, let's just do massive screening to see who's got this greater propensity towards like lung cancer if they smoke 100 a day. We might have public health messages that say, this stuff's really bad for you. And it's even worse if you've got something genetically that means that you've got this increased risk. Um, and that's just an analogy for me about the trap we've become caught up in in trying to understand biologically you know, what are the drivers 
without just saying it's patently obvious and even people in the sector and politicians acknowledge that the external world, world has this impact. Um, so in student life, it's very clear that there are a number of factors that are likely to drive um, you know, poorer mental health. Um, you're gonna have family pressures, you're gonna have you know, pressures beyond the family, but in the kind of social circumstances and the social networks within which you move. Um, there's gonna be you know, expectations about you know, where you should be at a particular stage in life. There's gonna be the role of social media and how that reinforces that, particularly if your social networks match your real world networks and social media, then you're looking at, you know, peers graduating, you're looking at peers who are getting into particular roles and feeling that, you know, your self of sense, your sense of self-worth isn't gonna be valid and valued unless you kind of attain something similar. Um, so you've kind of got those, which is gonna be general for all students. And then you've got the layers of things that I spoke about for people from racialized backgrounds, where, you know, the kind of issues around faculty staff and the kind of, you know, other forms of inequality. Um, and at the start, when I was talking about the experience of the lockdown, how that's going to be different, then of course, student life may well be different if you're not from an affluent background. And there's obviously a kind of greater link between, you know, poorer income and you know poor socioeconomic status and being from a racialized background so some of what we see will arise from class um, and some people say well isn't the main issue about socioeconomic status and that's too simplistic mm -hmm. absolutely um we're we're nearing the end of the interview here and i, I wanted to ask you a somewhat open-ended question um which is really i mean th there's a way that a lot of the time when we focus and in our project we 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 ask these questions about about anxiety that we we tend to move towards or, or be sort of pulled towards a focus on how do you treat the individual how do you help the individual who's suffering this affliction and a move away from the question of well what how would we transform the way in which we live together how would we transform society so that the triggers of this affliction, the stressors, the, the things that produce anxiety might be removed. And I think this is an especially important question when we're talking about race, racism and racialization, that, you know, there's a sense that these social forces create incredible stressors, incredible anxieties in people's lives uh, that are, that perpetuate the kinds of systemic and structural inequalities in the ways that you mentioned, that have this kind of long shadow and the shadow gets longer every generation that we allow these systems to perpetuate. So I'm interested for, for you, what you're thinking is these days about how do we connect the need to provide care and treatment to individuals to sort of struggles to actually transform the broader systems that are delivering these individuals into care in the first place. Yeah, I noticed I used the word failure um, a couple of times already and it's weird because it's not a way in which I'd normally um, speak about things. And I think, you know, I, I have real strong feelings, um, kind of having seen what I've seen in the States just in the last um, you know, 36 hours. Um, so I guess that's um, at the forefront of my mind. But th there's a book called Demedicalizing Misery, um, Mark Rapley, Joanna Moncrief, and Jackie Dillon, um, editors. And in it, they kind of talk about the internal mental pathology that, you know, which is what you described, that often our system is looking at what's going on in people's heads um, and we're trying to fix that and treat that in this very individualized way. Um, and 
I see that as a kind of fundamental flaw in our mental health service provision, um, either for students or for the general population. And I guess we could kind of look at some of the research um, from the World Health Organization um, in 1978, when they looked at recovery rates um, in India, Columbia, Colombia, um, and Nigeria, I think it was. And they identified that despite um, the lower levels of access to pharmaceuticals that were believed to be <laughs> pretty critical in terms of supporting recovery, these lower income countries were achieving better forms of recovery and rates of recovery. Um, so this was kind of discovered. Um, and what was interesting, um, as that research became more and more well known, and we spoke about in this country, in the affluent West, well, you know, why don't we take some of those lessons? The argument was used that the reason why the recovery rates were different is because there were different models of community then that enabled people to be supported through their mental health crises. Um, so those models wouldn't work here. So the full stop is there at that point. Um, but the unspoken part of it is we've got different models of community, so we have to kind of carry on with our individualized biological approaches to treatment and lead with pharmaceuticals. And once you bring up that additional sentence, you realize that we have choice. We have the choice of saying, let's carry on with this kind of, you know, medical interventionist perspective, or we could kind of think about, well, we can see there are different models around the, uh, the, the globe um, where community plays a different role. And maybe we could invest in shifting that. Um, and we haven't really chosen to do that as a system, nor as a nation. Um, and that's not unique just to the UK, it kind of happens in many so-called Western countries. Um, I say so-called because it depends where you're on the globe as to whether in the West, but that's a different conversation. Um, so I think that there are choices. Um, and I often kind of you know, talk about the survivors of childhood sexual abuse, um, again, to illustrate my point, that in our system, we continue to say, we know that at least 50%, probably 85% of women on our acute wards are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And what we do is we tailor our treatment models and we kind of really try and be empathic and where people do want to engage with us over that, we'll have the conversations and work with them. And the reason I spoke about failure is because, yet again, I think it's a massive failure in our system where we don't say, we see the patterns. And we need to then go further upstream and say to society, we have a moral obligation to alert you to the consequences of some of the things that we feel are contributory to the patterns that we're seeing. And we need to support society to then correct some of these things that are going wrong in our society. And I use that as an analogy to also then talk about race. That actually, if we're seeing these kind of patterns of racialized people having these poor outcomes that we've alluded to previously, um, and if we kind of really believe that the socioeconomic status of people and that the racism that people have experienced either personalized or in a more diffuse way is having a negative outcome because we keep seeing the pattern of higher rates of mental problems, then there's a moral obligation on our sector to be feeding back to the wider population and to decision makers and politicians to say, we actually seriously need to change the levels of racism in our society. Because even if it's purely from an economic perspective, 
our mental health services resources are being consumed by a group of people who are at the further end of all the kind of you know, the, the, the consequences of the racism that they've been experiencing. Um, and I, I know psychiatry, I don't mean psychiatrists, but our discipline does try and do some work in terms of shining a light on racism. But given the scale of inequality and variations, I think we should be standing on housetops and saying, this racism has got to stop because we're seeing the consequences. And the problem is, whilst we continue to think that this is about individuals, we can look to other people to solve it. But the reality is, it affects all of us. We're all connected. That, you know, when people are fearful um, because they're worried about someone with a mental problem being a problem to them or begging on the street and making them feel, or asking for money on the street and making them feel uncomfortable or, you know, any of the kind of problems, it affects all of us in one way or another. And even if you reduce it in a capitalist context to the financial burden, it affects all of us. And that's the bit. I think that is the key for us to realize that it isn't just the individual who breaks down and it's their problem or their family's problem, but it affects all of us. And the solution therefore rests in the hands of all of us. And maybe there is something about strengthening our communities and something about saying racism is bad for all of us. Inequality is it's like really bad. No one wins out of this. Even if you feel you're protected and you do have your nice house with your garden and your ability to come on online platforms and be protected, actually, in other ways, this is really affecting you adversely. Harry, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, a fabulous conversation and uh, gives us a lot, a lot to think about and a lot to work with for thinking through these questions of anxiety in this moment. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a, a pleasure. So yeah, that, that was, again, I think uh, a fascinating um, conversation. I was just really interested to hear from Harry and his uh, just real wealth of experience uh, with, with the, those, the, this, these questions of um, racialized anxiety. And I think, you know, what I found really uh, particularly relevant to, to our project is how, in effect, this process of unpeeling the many layers of this sort of uh, biomedical approach to anxiety, how um, it's very helpful to see what each of those layers uh, of, of that individualizing biomedical model does to, uh, to racialize, to the experiences of racialized people um, in, in today's capitalism. And, uh, you know, he, he, Harry talked about so many things that I think are worth reflecting on more. Uh, I'll just, just a couple of, a couple of them that I, I kind of, I kept as, you know, particularly salient in, in, in terms of those layers that I'm peaking, um, where the role of the experience of young people that, you know, we kind of, um, I thought it was really uh, useful the way Harry talked about those experiences as very much embedded within these kind of current, um, this current culture of racism and, uh, you know, they're not really uh, diverging. They're not really moving forward towards a kind of, uh, you know, in, in that sense, there wasn't very much of an optimist tone in, in the analysis of the current experience of younger people. And 
especially experiences in universities, which remain spaces that are very hostile to them. Um, and, but I thought, you know, uh, issues around, for instance, that we didn't get the chance to talk to Harry about to do with technologies and social media, kind of he kind of touched on questions around image and the pressure to kind of chase after um, the, uh, the, 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 the perceptions and acceptance from circles uh, in social media and how these experiences are kind of exacerbated uh, and these anxious experiences are exacerbated for, 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 uh, for um, non-white people in at universities. Uh, I thought that, that's something that is really worth thinking about more. And finally, I, you know, this question of community and how, how one can think of alternative ways of looking at the question of anxiety um, and what that community might consist of, because that's a question that, you know, again, we're very interested in and there is no easy answers to, but I, I thought that what Harry was talking about there was a lot to do with kind of questions of building solidarity um, uh, and, and uh, that solidarity, uh, it, it's sort of, um, it, it's a solidarity that can only be built upon uh, moving away from that non-racist type of uh, facile, uh, dominant view of kind of today's politics. So yeah, I think again, loads of food for thought there, but yeah, these were the points that I thought were particularly uh, relevant to, to our discussions. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I felt one of the things that I appreciated so much about our conversation is that it, it gives us resources to think about the complexities of what we in our research have thought about as the kind of three main alibis uh, around or, or responses to anxiety and sort of mainstream discourse. And, you know, we've talked about those as, you know, first the idea that, that students are sort of coddled and that they've been too lightly handled in their youth by schooling and parents. And therefore, by the time they reach university, they suffer elevated rates of anxiety because they haven't been sort of prepared by the proverbial school of hard knocks. Um, and then the second sort of explanation that's preferred in, in mainstream discourse is that, you know, this is only because uh, we have a generation that we've raised on social media that has made them, you know, pathologically anxious. And it's, so it's just all technology's fault. And, and then the third, and in some ways most common explanation is that, you know, anxiety is simply a personal biomedical matter to be dealt with between an individual and medical practitioners. And I think Harry's approach that he outlined to us when thinking specifically about racialized students, but not only about racialized uh, students, um, is that all three of these explanations are vastly insufficient to explain mm. the multitude of power relations in society that people bring with them to the classroom and bring with them to the medical examination room and bring with them to all aspects of their life, including the experience of both explicit um, interpersonal racism, but also institutional and systemic racism. Um, so I'm really, I'm really glad that in the interview we got to talk about those things. The only other thing I would add is that it's curious to me, um, and, and something we may want to follow up on, or hopefully others will follow up on, that if we think about the, the tenor of university struggles today, I think on both sides of the North Atlantic, and also elsewhere as well, we've seen a huge amount of student protest in the last decade or two decades around uh, racism and against racism. This has taken the form of calls to decolonize the curriculum, 
uh, the the in, the demonstrations inspired by the the roads must fall and colonialism must fall movements in South Africa, which then had their manifestations here in the UK, but also elsewhere to take down statues of racist scumbags that litter universities these days, and also to um, reevaluate the curriculum in multiple different fields, from sort of canonical literature to even psychology and mental health. Uh, but we've also seen demonstrations and occupations like a recent one at Goldsmiths, which framed student demands very much in a language of racial exclusion, oppression, uh, and, and uh, exploitation. We've seen calls to diversify the faculty. In the United States, we've seen incredible movements uh, that have emerged out of and continue the legacy of Black Lives Matter uh, on university campuses in my home country of Canada. The, the most fertile uh, space of student protest is anti-colonial, um, led by indigenous students, whether that expresses itself in terms of support for indigenous blockades, or uh, the way that even students who are working on environmentalist movements have taken up the, the rhetoric and made alliances with indigenous students and, and name the, the capitalist ecocidal system as one that's built on genocide and racism and colonialism. And so it's curious to me that, uh, you know, as we challenge ourselves as scholars to think through whether anxiety can become a platform for new forms of resistance and rebellion, in a certain way, uh, I think we can look towards the persistence of protests against race and uh, racialization and racism in the university space as perhaps a place where that is being experimented with and prefigured, um, especially because as we discussed in our last episode with Alana Lenton and this episode with Harry Sewell, we've noted the way that um, many different types of anxiety in society get projected onto race, that race becomes a freighted signifier mm -hmm. for all sorts of different concerns that then mm -hmm. unfairly get placed at the feet of racialized people. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if, how far I would push that, but I think it, it is one piece of the puzzle that we're trying to sort out. And it'll be interesting to see what else we can make of it in the future. So this is The Order of Unmanageable Risks, which is a podcast about capitalism and anxiety, which is produced by the Common Anxieties Research Project that RS and I uh, co-direct. It is supported by the Institute for Advanced Studies at University College London and the Reimagining Value Action Lab, or RIVAL. And you can find out more about this podcast and listen to past episodes at anxious.community. Uh, http colon slash slash anxious dot community we'll see you next time see you next time <laughs>